Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to The Policy Dispatch. I'm Sam Morgan, your host and guide through the exciting and fascinating world of the energy transition. This is in fact our 30th episode, and I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in and listening over the course of this season. I've spoken with so many interesting guests over the course of those episodes, and I can guarantee that this is a trend that is only going to continue. Today we're taking a look at a sector of the renewables industry that doesn't always feature prominently in discussions about what the energy system of the future will look like. Which is strange, because more than two-thirds of our planet is covered by the substance that could generate massive quantities of green, clean power. Ocean energy technologies are an exciting renewables prospect. Whether it's generating electrons using the power of tides and waves, providing heating and cooling using what are effectively waterborne heat pumps, or desalinating seawater, there are some extremely interesting and promising applications just waiting to be unlocked. I've always been fascinated by the idea of using water to solve our climate and energy challenges. Growing up in southeast Wales on the rivers Wye and Severn, the power of tides was always impressed upon me, mostly by my parents, who made it clear from a very early age that going in either of those rivers would be a very, very bad idea. Engineers have wanted to harness the power of those waters for decades. Various massive infrastructure projects have been proposed, ranging from massive barrages that could power most of the UK to smaller tidal lagoons that could nevertheless still have a really big impact on the country's shift towards green. None of those projects have come to fruition yet, but as I find out in today's discussion with Remy Gruet, the CEO of Ocean Energy Europe, these kinds of technologies are enjoying a resurgence in fortunes. Developers are showing renewed interest in scaling them up, and the future looks bright for the sector. Just before we get into that chat, time for the policy dispatch quiz question. Today I'm asking you, the world's largest tidal power station is in South Korea. How many megawatts does it generate? Is it A, 5 megawatts? B, 107 megawatts? C, 254 megawatts? or D, 502 megawatts? Answer, as always, after the show. So Remy, is it fair to say then that ocean energy technologies and their potential to generate a lot of green power, green electricity, energy, has been somewhat forgotten or put on the back burner by policymakers in recent years when it comes to planning the energy system of the future? Or or do you think that there has been enough attention given to the sector what's your what's your take on that Uh, i think everything changed two years ago essentially so up until two years ago we have had i would say a dry spell when it comes to interest and support from from politicians specifically when it comes to financial support which is needed to develop these innovative technologies who are obviously not currently competitive uh, on par with with wind and solar for example so for a number of years, we've been missing a bit of that attention and, and financial support. But in the last two years, things have really drastically changed. 
Uh, the UK has put uh, a feed-in tariff, so a subsidy per kilowatt hour on the table uh, for in 2022 and has repeated it in 2023 and is offering a new one for 2024. And they've increased the tariffs each time because of the current crisis and commodity prices are, are going up. Uh, so that, that's on the UK side. Uh, in France, we've, uh, we have a pilot project worth 17 megawatts, so seven machines that... Uh, is also being financed by the French government. Uh, in the US, we've had about 500 million of investments uh, into innovation. So, and, and recently at European level, like really the European Commission uh, ecosystem of, of programs of support for innovation and technologies in the, in the energy field, you've had about 100 and 120 million worth of, of, uh, of support as well. Mm-hmm. So very, very significant new support in the last two years and we're really seeing the the change as a shift also in interest from policymakers from before where it was very much about installing wind and solar uh, to now where it's like okay most probably wind and solar are going to make it now uh, and it's not most probably it's, it's obviously evident but um, they're the cheapest technologies everywhere in the world uh, so what do we do next what do we do with these um, after we've developed those and how do we manage the variability of these two technologies mm-hmm. and uh, and this is where ocean energy can come in very 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 well mm-hmm. and what have been the the biggest challenges from your point of view prior to this two years then has it always been just financial not having enough cash to develop these technologies or has it been this kind of regulatory aspect missing as well that, that has held things back what, what have been the real not stumbling blocks but yeah. the the anchors on on really rolling these technologies out at a larger scale well i would say it's still finances um we've we've put a first wave of pilot farms in the water in 2015 2016 mm-hmm. uh, these turbines have uh, been there for over eight, seven eight years now and they have delivered power consistently to the grid uh, some of them have been their test pilot farms right so some of them been taken out for maintenance for testing to just see how they behave they've been put back in but they've consistently produced and we've had, I would say, anywhere between seven and 10 technologies, which were essentially ready for uh, for more pilot projects. And the lack of public subsidies for the sector has made that private investors have been unable to invest in new pilot farms because uh, the business case was just wasn't adding up. Mm-hmm. So finance, from my perspective, for those five years between 2016, 2017 and 2022, has been the crucial missing link, if you like, to develop and to push technologies uh, closer to, to commercialization mm-hmm. very clearly. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we just talk about the financing aspect of it, um, I guess the big pots of money around the world in recent years have been the European Union's COVID Recovery Fund and the US's Inflation Reduction Act, billions of euros and dollars respectively. Um, have you seen evidence already of, of that cash going towards ocean energy technologies in you know where they have been allocated to this and finally it has unlocked a bit of a bit of spending in, in that in your in your sector so I'd say differentiated in Europe no uh, in the US probably a lot more um, so in Europe the cash we've seen being freed for the sector is principally innovation money. So programs, European programs such as um, Horizon Europe, Horizon 2020, and also um, Green Green Deal money. So Innovation Fund, which is another program aimed at deployment of green technologies, 
decarbonize, decarbonizing innovation, essentially. So this is where the money has come from at European level. The Green Deal money, we haven't seen it. Uh, it's, it's gone largely to established sectors. Uh, mm -hmm. There were big calls for employing it to green the economy, to make it, to, to go further into a path into decarbonization as far as I know. And there haven't been many reports of what the member states have really done with that money, but it's, it's not really where it's gone. Like it's, it's gone to established sector. It's gone to people who've really needed it as well. It's very clearly. So hospitals, catering, um, restaurants mm -hmm. and people who really suffered. But for us, it's been very difficult to access that. In the US, it's been a bit different. The Inflation Reduction Act has uh, has put a lot of cash on the table. It's very centered at, at uh, manufacturing in the US as well. So we have seen and we, we invite the, the, the US government every year to our annual conference, which is the, the annual uh, conference of the ocean energy sector. And they, they came the last two years with a very clear message is we have cash for you. Mm -hmm. Come and install in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, which is great from a sectoral perspective and it gives opportunities and et cetera. Now, if I was the European Commission, I would be a bit worried that all the money I've invested patiently in the last 10 years via the programs I mentioned earlier is actually at the moment where we reach commercialization uh, and industrialization is going to be snatched up by the US. Mm -hmm. So this is a bit where, yeah, where we need to be careful as Europe if we want to bank on the investments that we've made into the development of those technologies. Mm -hmm. And that kind of preempts my, my, my question, actually, from like a geopolitical point of view. You look at other energy technologies, solar panels, batteries. It's very much Southeast Asia, China that has dominated yeah. these sectors over the last couple of years. Given that ocean energy technology is in an earlier stage than these established yeah. ones, is the race to be the region that dominates the production, manufacturing, rollout of, of ocean technology still open? Or I guess from what you've just said, the US is is kind of taking that opportunity and, and Europe is risks flagging behind a bit. Is that right to say? Or um, Europe, Europe is the technological bed for the development of ocean energy. So we still have a technological advantage that is uncontested, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's wave, whether it's tidal, or even less developed technology like salinity gradient or, or OTEC. Um, most of these technologies are more advanced in Europe. And you can see also US companies actually coming and installing in Europe because the regulatory framework is better, mm -hmm. it's better developed for that. So I, I don't, I think the US is seizing the opportunity because they have recognized it. Um, at the moment, from a technological perspective, Europe has a technological advantage. So it's likely that the projects that hit the water first will be in Europe. Mm -hmm. We have a, a fairly large pipeline of projects. We will come out with actual figures at the end of this month in February in our annual publication, which is a stats and trends for, for ocean energy. Uh, but we can see today a very strong pipeline for, for the next five years going forward. So this will happen in Europe first. China is doing what China does. They, they copy technologies, uh, completely blatant. They even copied the colors of, uh, of the technologies they copied. So uh, no, no shame there. Um, and they're deploying their things for their home market. This is the way they did it for solar and wind as well. Mm -hmm. First, they invite external companies, then they copy, then they develop their own market, then they export. So mm -hmm. for wind and solar, we're clearly in the last phase there, the exporting phase where um, after developing their own market, they're, they're hitting ours. For ocean energy, it's going to take a while. Um, I think there is, there is significant resource in China. They will, they will develop that first. 
And also we have a small advantage that offshore wind has to a certain extent, but that the solar guys are missing. I mean, solar is immensely packageable. You can, you can put 500 panels into a container, 500 containers on a ship and send it from China to Europe. No problem. The cost of the transport is going to be minimal. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't really do that with offshore wind turbines. In fact, they still import some, some parts. They still import some steel, maybe easy. Uh, not, not complex steel, but like basic steel uh, mm -hmm. from, for towers. But they will even, even if they import steel, they will roll it. So make it into towers in Europe, generally, close to the resource. And for us, it's a bit the same. We have bulky, heavy technology that needs to go at the bottom of all the ocean that has a technological advantage. So we need to be in control of most of the manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And we have an interest in... Uh, in essentially putting a lot of the added value close to the resource. And because, because it's difficult and expensive to transport, it's most likely that um, as the supply chain expands, and at the moment we have a 100% European supply chain for European projects, I think I can say that safely. Um, every single project I have seen has 50 to 80% national content, 100% European content, so very, very strong. Uh, so this will continue, but the supply chain will spread across Europe, even to countries like we, we have manufacturing in Austria at the moment for, you know, machines we put in the water. A not exactly, country. Yeah, <laughs> a country, so not exactly a great uh, sea access. But um, so this will continue and, and it will standardize and it will make it cheaper. How far we go in the supply chain is remains a question. But what is already clear is a large part of the value added will remain close to the resource because this is where we need it. And it's, it's just cheaper to do it like that. If we zoom in maybe on specific European countries that have really spent a lot of attention on developing these technologies, trialing them, testing them, investing in manufacturing, um, are there any particular uh, best examples that you can name? I mean, from my experience of scanning headlines and everything, it always seems to be France that is is coming up with new ideas all the time. I don't know if that's that's fair to say. Um, but are there any other countries that really recognize the, the potential and have done something about it? Uh, France has a great resource, uh, but France has historically been slow on renewables for nuclear reasons, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but on Tidal, they've just woken up, let's, let's, uh, let's call it that. Last year, they um, committed to finance a pilot farm worth 17 megawatts. They also, President Macron also named, uh, announced that he would do commercial tenders for Tidal uh, in, in France. So these are very good signals. But the UK is the first country in Europe that started to actually uh, put revenue support. So this, this per kilowatt hour uh, subsidy that we need to be able to attract private investors into projects. Mm -hmm. So the UK is the first one to put that on the table in Europe for, for Tidal. We're still waiting to see that happen for WAVE. Essentially, in terms of countries, UK, France, bit the Netherlands for, for Tidal are clearly the leading countries and, and already existing markets. For WAVE, you've got all the Atlantic coasts, like from UK, Ireland, uh, France, Spain, Portugal. Mm -hmm. uh, that is extremely interesting. It's, it's where the winds from the Atlantic are building up the waves and the waves come in crashing on the west side of Europe. So you have very aggressive, but also very rich resource for, for wave devices. Uh, but you can also find a lot of manufacturing in, in Italy. Uh, Eni is building their own device to decarbonize their platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, in Finland, which is not a landlocked country, but the Baltic has almost zero waves, but they have a good industrial base. So they're manufacturing devices for other countries 
uh, Sweden. We see Swedish devices, Finnish devices being installed in Portugal, uh, in the UK, uh, looking at other countries as well. Uh, Belgium had uh, had some developments, uh, nothing at the moment. Uh, Denmark has uh, quite a few manufacturers of, of Wii devices, so it's it's quite spread out in terms of interest. Some have a more industrial interest, so some have a more electricity production and resource interest, and some have both. And mm-hmm. maybe you've heard more about France because clearly it has both. Uh, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's one of the interesting countries, but really not the only one. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just €29. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. And is it predominantly then Atlantic, North Sea kind of countries in Europe, or, or is the Mediterranean, a, you know, a, a potential area as well? What's um, what's the potential there like? So for tidal, there is very little potential in the in the Mediterranean. There is a bit around the islands because essentially the tides, the the the, elect- the energy we use is the energy created by the tides. So movement of water back and forth. When you have two bits of land and you have a large body of water that need to pass in between two land masses, then it tends to do that by accelerating mm-hmm. because you need, essentially, it's a bit like, uh, it's a ventry effect, it's called. So for if you, but, um, if you dealt with wind before, it's essentially you accelerate to pass the same amount of, of water through a smaller a gap. So this is what we use. And there is a bit of that in the Mediterranean, not too much. Um, there is more wave again, not quite as good as the Atlantic, uh, very obviously. So at the moment, we're mostly using it for testing and, uh, to develop machines in a slower environment, a safer environment where you're not going to smash your machine to bits if you make a mistake, mm-hmm. uh, with the objective of exporting later. And I, I think the Mediterranean is, um, is going to be just like we've seen for wind, where they've developed the North Sea first, which had the most aggressive winds, most stable, most most easy, uh, easily accessible, and then they moved on uh, towards the south, more the south of Europe, or even in Germany, South Germany, which has slower winds, but they develop machines for that. So I think for waves specifically, the same is going to happen. At the moment, everybody wants to go to Portugal and Ireland, They're the Eldorados of wave and France. Uh-huh. Uh, but rapidly, Malta, Italy, Greek islands, uh, you will see uh, some people developing machines that yeah, can fit those specific wave types uh, that are going to be uh, maybe designed a bit differently to be able to capture a resource that is less aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we've learned how to do it on, on the aggressive resource, it, it will be no problem. But at the moment, given the capex of the machine, it makes more sense to put 10 million into uh, of a machine worth 10 million into a resource that can extract mm. more ele- more energy than a resource that can extract less energy. The Eldorado of waves, I like that. That's uh, yeah. I'll, I'll use that if that's okay. Um, great, great. At the moment, there's so much offshore planning being done uh, by various parts of the energy sector, interconnectors, wind farms, mm. you name it. Um, what does that look like from an ocean energy point of view? Is the idea of perhaps co-locating these energy generation sources with wind farms, established centers of energy generation already? Is that something that the sector is looking at as well? Or is it really this 
bit of the sea is where we're going to do ocean energy, tidal, wave. This is where we're going to do wind. The two won't have any synergies or, or is that kind of um, overlap already being thought about? So recently it's been, it's been thought about for a long time, but recently it's actually been interesting for companies to, to look at. <laughs> and the reason behind that is that when we started 10 years ago, the technology wasn't as developed as today. So you would go and speak to a wind farm developer and say, hey, can I put my machines in the same area as yours? Like we both use the wind. You use it directly. I use it indirectly because the, your wind builds my waves and I use the waves with my machines. And they would go back to us and say, listen, uh, you're, you're very nice, but I don't want you uh, tripping my one gigawatt wind farm with your 10 kilowatt or 100 kilowatt or even one megawatt machines. Um, that haven't been thoroughly tested. Uh-huh. So we, they were a bit like looking at us like the, you know, the poor, the poor offshore parent of the energy sector, which is fair enough. The playground bully almost. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you like. Uh, but, but the last year, last two years, maybe, um, again, we've seen that attitude completely change because the technology has progressed. The trust in the technological capacity of the devices to not trip a one gigawatt wind farm, which mm-hmm. would be very expensive for both parties. Uh, is is more understood and uh, we have solutions for that and we have uh, obviously technology that is not breaking down um, every two minutes. So this becomes technologically less of a risk. And then the question is more, okay, I have a wind park. It's already de-risked. It's already the environmental impact is done. The permitting is done. The zoning is done. It's more or less an exclusion zone for fishing, even though in some parks, smaller vessels can come and fish, but larger obviously band what shall i do with that space wouldn't it make sense to put wave devices in the same space given everything is almost there and i even have a cable mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in a lot of in a lot of cases the cable is, is well above the the necess- the needs of of the, the farm itself so yes there is a lot of um not a lot yet but there is clearly a number of parties that are looking at whether it's possible not only to put it inside a farm, but also the probably the most interesting I've heard so far is to use the wave devices to absorb the wave energy before it hits the wind park. Uh-huh. And the reason behind that is that offshore wind turbines uh, have obviously forces at the top of the turbine from the winds that are affecting the tower. But they also, and this is what people often don't know, they have forces at the bottom of the turbine from the ground of the bottom of the sea, which is... As, as deep as 50 meters at the moment. This is what we do for, for bottom-mounted wind. So zero to 50 meters, you have the tides, you have the waves, you have the currents, and all of that are forces that affect the, the tower. And sometimes they're in different directions from the wind. So right. mm. as, as an engineer, you need to manage all of these things. If you put a wave park just in front of your turbine where the waves most commonly come, then the wave devices will absorb some of the energy of the waves and you will have less strength, less forces affecting your wind farm. You will have less destabilization of your tower. Maybe you need less strength for your materials. Uh, maybe you need less balancing and less pitching of your blades to offset the changes. And this is something that people are, are really looking at now. So how to essentially combine both technologies synergetically, like you said, uh, to have one absorb the, the forces and and basically protect the other, if you like, mm-hmm. and allow it to generate either more electricity or to generate it cheaper. That's fantastic. So, I never, yeah. never yeah. considered the aspect of you know making wind farms last longer, I guess, because they need to be repaired or maintained less frequently if if these forces aren't being exerted on them, perhaps. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it would affect really the, the maintenance rates or something. For me, it's more about electricity production, really. Mm-hmm. And the fact that if the tower moves too much, the blades need to pitch constantly to balance the fact that uh, 120 meters high up, mm-hmm. you're going to have six, you know, it's like the buildings for the uh, for the earthquakes. They, they move, right? But it's, it's the same with the tower. They're going to move. But like the more they move, then your blades are not facing the wind anymore. Mm-hmm. They're a bit... Off, so then you need to pitch them. Sometimes you can't really offset that at all. Uh, so it's it's more about energy production, I would think, than outright maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, because let's face it, I mean, wind turbines pretty sturdy from from that perspective. We we no longer in the 2010s where uh, they had issues with the towers. Yeah, I mean, these things are just like I'm constantly boggled by how you know, gigantic these things are, and you can oh, yeah. knock them over with a, a meteorite. I don't know. Um, I mean, is it just electricity generation that we're talking about here, with the potential for ocean technologies? Are or, I mean, it was a week ago I saw the, the successful test of this electrolyzer at sea by a bunch mm. company um, producing hydrogen next to the energy generation source, a, a wind turbine. I think is that something that the sector is exploring as well, where it, it isn't just direct electricity that can be generated using this. There are other products as well. Yeah, you can. And in fact, we have also other technologies like OTEC, uh, which is called Ocean Ocean Thermal Energy Exchange, which is essentially a heat pump technology with seawater, cold cold water from the bottom, warm water from the top. Uh, And they can produce desalinized water. They can produce other products. So byproducts are also an interesting thing, uh, f- specifically for wave and hydrolyzers. I have one member who's considering putting an electrolyzer on a wave floater. Whether it's going to happen or not, whether it's going to be a market or not, is a bit up in the air at the moment. Uh, electrolyzer are innovative technologies. Wave devices are innovative technologies. When you add to innovative technologies, generally you have a multiplication factor when it comes to price, when it comes to risk. Uh, so how much do you want to go into that before both technologies have been de-risked? cost reductions, et cetera, is, is a bit the question mark. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. Um, can it be done cost-effectively, commercially, long-term? That's a bit the question that nobody can answer at the moment, um, not, not least because the market for hydrogen is still very unclear. Like we, we know some policymakers are very excited by the perspective. We know the gas industry is very excited by the perspective of their own survival mm-hmm. because, quite frankly, without hydrogen, there is no more gas industry in Europe. Uh, and they know that very well. And this is why they're not only interested in green hydrogen, but they also want to use their existing extraction capacity uh, uh, and, and pump hydrogen to the system. So all of this makes it a, the, the cost aspects, economical aspects of your question fairly complex to answer today, I would say. I think we will develop both technologies separately for now. And then if it makes sense, maybe for offshore applications, like you want to have a a refueling system, so wave-powered hydrogen production offshore that ships could connect to, without going back to the you know in the middle of the Atlantic, without going back to uh, to either side of uh, of the US or Europe. Mm-hmm. You could think of stuff like that 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 could work. But I think it's mostly for for the future. Uh, it's interesting that it's 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 being thought about at least, even if we are at a perhaps an early oh, yeah. stage. Um, you mentioned permitting uh, just now as well, where mm-hmm. you know, this is obviously a, a huge part of renewables rollout. Has your sector benefited at all from the recent, you know, relaxations in a way, permitting regimes? Um, is it a massive problem as well to to get permits and to cut the red tape and everything, or or is it not not the biggest problem like it is for wind or onshore wind, this kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, 
it's still a problem because um, in some countries, it's less of a problem than wind, very clearly. But also because we are building smaller projects at the moment. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it is supported by research, uh, research funding programs, etc. So it's we we haven't hit yet the the scale that the wind guys have. So it's it's less of an issue for us. But it's still also an issue. Um, access to the to the seabed, um, all the environmental impact assessment aspects, which we are happy to do because they help us understand. So far, we have very little impacts when it comes. I mean, any studies we've seen in the last ten years have been fairly positive on that front. But all of the all of the permitting red tape, uh, like like you phrased it, essentially makes the project time to hit the water longer and that costs money. So mm-hmm. from the from a cost aspect, it's still it's still an issue. And also maybe the everything that is being done at the moment to reduce red tape for the wind guys is going to be useful for us. Right. Um, so that's, we have very similar concerns. It's, it's, yeah, it's seabed lease, it's permitting, it's where the cable is going, um, and, and whether we hit uh, protected areas or not, and what type of mitigation measures are put in place or, or avoidance, uh, ideally measures are put in place. But, um, on the permitting side, that's, um, it's less, less of an issue, if you like, at the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I do really love the the innovation aspect of of your sector. I mean, doing some research for for this episode, I I'd never seen it before. But this salinity technology, oh, yes. where I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's fresh water hitting seawater, and you can hardly yeah, charge from it. Maybe you could just sort of talk about that a bit. I mean, do you see there a sure. lot of potential there, and is there are there people really interested in developing this? I when I read about it, it sounded a bit sci-fi, you know. But it's um, yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, you need some chemical knowledge to realize that this is a possibility, and uh, and it's it's a bit above what you get taught at school. But essentially, it's not that complex. It's it's membrane-based technologies, and you have ions passing through, and that generates electricity. So. The, the potential is currently being investigated by the European Commission. They've commissioned uh, the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany, the well-known institute, to actually check into what we could generate in Europe. Um, there are three companies in Europe developing this at the moment. Uh, one, one of our members, in fact, uh, Redstack, has a has a pilot farm, uh, pilot project uh, in uh, in the Netherlands on on a dike. So you have salt water on one side of the dike, and you have fresh water on the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one thing I didn't know about dikes is if you don't put fresh water on the other side, you're blocking the salt water from going above land. Well, what's it going to do? It's going to go under, underneath. So oh, it, you need the pressure of the, the fresh water on the other side to prevent mm-hmm. the pressure of the salt water to go through the ground underneath your dike. So that gives you two bodies of water you can play with. And uh, obviously it needs refreshing on a regular basis. So this is what they're using to uh, to have both a saline and a non-saline body of water and generate electricity with it. So yeah, that's, uh, that's operating at the moment. And yeah, we're, we're looking forward to the results of the, of the study from Fraunhofer to assess really what type of potential there is for that in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to the companies, there is a lot of potential. How much is, is always um, the question. So yeah, to, to give you a, a parallel for, for wave and tidal, we estimate and that we can deliver at least hundred gigawatts by 2050 of those technologies. So it's about as much production in terms of pure production as uh, hydropower is generating today. Wow. 
incredible which, numbers. You know, pretty pretty significant. It's not it's not nuclear. It's not gas. But soon these two technologies aren't going to produce much anyway. So absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, when we're talking about the innovative stuff like this salinity yeah. technology. How does that kind of work with testing sites and prototypes and getting the permits for that? Is, is there been enough support for that kind of thing from regulators where you have these test beds or areas where you can go and you don't have to deal with all the red tape? Yeah. You know, that, that seems to be a problem for other sectors where we want yes. to trial this, but we, we just can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is really one of the aspects of the uh, permitting changes that Europe's put forward in their uh, Repower EU package, if you have heard of it. Uh, which is basically a simpli- red tape simplification package. Let's uh, to simplify it, and and they they were proposing zones where you would already have a number of things that would be de risk. You would have some environmental studies that would have already have been done for a number of technologies, uh, and essentially it would be much easier to go testing to a certain extent, go deploying even lar- larger capacities. But you would have these zones, and we are obviously very favorable for this because. If you look, if you're a developer of technology that's innovative, you're focused on your machine, you're focused on making it work, you're focused on making it as cheap as possible already for the prototypes because money is hard to get by. So on top of it, if you need to worry about the, the red tape, et cetera, there are different skill sets uh, to a certain extent. Like we, we work with a lot of companies that have 90% engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them have commercial directors, directors, very few have marketing people, mm-hmm. even fewer have permitting experts. Uh, so it's very useful for us to have these zones and it's very useful uh, both for early stage and also for later stage. We are actually as a sector calling for, for a, a better zoning for, offshore deployment, or whether it's for the wind guys or for us, it's, uh, it's going to be very useful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe just as a final question to, to tail off the episode, I'm always interested in the, the just transition aspect of, of new energy technologies and you know, how do we get workers from old yeah. dying technologies into new ones? Is there anything specific maybe about ocean technology where moving I don't know, offshore rig workers or coal miners, you know, the, the usual, mm. usual tropes and cliches into your sector is, is happening or there is potential there for the repurposing, reskilling of, of jobs, that kind of thing. Is there a specific condition? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's part of the good news. Um, I mean, coal miners, we'll see. And I mean, then they require proper reskilling, uh, not necessarily a problem, but you need to have people who are willing to do that. But uh, talking about other industries that are not necessarily uh, having a rosy future, like fisheries, like shipbuilding in Europe, it's been going very, it's been, it's been in recession for, for a number of decades, really. Mm-hmm. Um, anything around ports like the ocean energy, just like offshore wind has been, is a new market opportunities for all these skills, all these jobs, and all these infrastructures. At the moment, most of the machines we've put in the water were built on the port uh, by uh, by wafts operators. They, we've been using cranes from the port. We've been using boats that are uh, from the local community. And we essentially, even to build the machines, we need very classical type of jobs that have been used in these um, historical sectors. We need, we need welders, we need electrical engineers, we need manutentioning staff. We need ship operators, not only captains, but also just basic ship operators. So, so all of these skill sets that are existing and that have been used for the offshore oil and gas sector, 
now for offshore wind uh, as well already uh, and also on land on on that side uh, of of the skill set all of this is useful for us and we are we are seeing ports basically already designating areas for offshore wind we've they've done that for for a number of, uh, of years but already for us port of Cherbourg is a good example they've, they've got an area which is said like you look at the map it's like this you have manufacturing of this and that there you have a bit of shipping you have wind and then you have ocean energy uh-huh. and uh, and that's already earmarked for for deployment and this is also where we put as a result one of the first manufacturing uh, or, or assembly um, sites uh, in Europe uh, so yeah, absolutely. Very good perspectives for reusing of skills in um, yeah less less fortunate economical uh, sectors. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic to hear because I, I mean, so many of these advancements seem to hinge on on getting that kind of aspect of the energy transition right and really bringing yeah, people along. Thank you, Remy, for so much for for joining me for this episode. It's been great to get an overview of of how the sector is going and. And really great to hear that over the last two years, it's really, there's been progress and there's more to come yeah, as well. Yeah, it's picking up. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Really looking forward watch, to hearing more. Space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you again, Remy. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed today's look at what is unfortunately a bit of an overlooked subject in energy policy making. Remy mentioned in the show that his association will be releasing some figures in late February about the sector. Tune in to our daily podcast, The Jolt, and we'll make sure to let you know what the report says. To access all of our podcasts and read all of our quality journalism, I'd really encourage you to become a member. We're offering one month free. Follow the link in the show notes for details on this great offer. And be sure to head over to the contributions section of this episode to let me know what you thought of it. Just before I leave you today, time to reveal the answer to the quiz question. I asked you... South Korea has the largest tidal power station in the world. How many megawatts does it generate? 5, 107, 254 or 502 megawatts? The correct answer is 254 megawatts. It's held that record for well over a decade. Great stuff, but surely we can do better. Judging by what Remy told us in the discussion today, it's definitely possible. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. Join me again next time for another look at a fascinating aspect of the energy transition. Music